You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Tim Vallier is a multifaceted artist. He is a composer, recently composing music for the Omaha Community Playhouse productions of Ripcord and of Mice and Men. He is an actor, having appeared as Beast in Beauty and the Beast for the Omaha Community Playhouse, Mark Cohen in Rent for Snap Productions, and a personal favorite of mine, Raul in Eating Raul for the Shelterbelt Theater. Tim served as music director for Gutenberg the Musical for the Candy Project and has been a technical artist for Yesterday and Today and Rock Twist with the Omaha Community Playhouse and also served as technical artist for the Metallica World Tour. He is currently finishing up his PhD in music composition from Stony Brook University. A self-described morning person, Tim often arises at 5 a.m. to work on creative pursuits for a few hours before heading off to his day job as a software development manager for Orion Healthcare Technology. He plays a wide range of instruments, including piano, guitar, ukulele, mandolin, trumpet, and bass. In his spare time, he enjoys spending time with his family, watching movies, reading, and playing video games with his son. Tim Vallier, welcome to the Green Room. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks so much for coming on. As I've done with all of my guests, we're going to start at the beginning. I know okay. you are originally from Omaha, correct? Yep, born and raised. And what part of Omaha did you grow up in? I grew up around 120th and 4th Street, a neighborhood called Roanoke. Where did you go to grade school? I went to Sunny Slope Elementary, which is 108th and Old Maple Road. Do you still have family in town? I do. Uh, my dad is still in town. Do you have any siblings? I do. I have one older sister, Jessica. She's six years older than me. And where does she live? She lives in North Carolina. And does she have the same musical theatrical background that oh, you do? Oh, nope, not quite. Uh, <laughs> she... <laughs> She, she never got into that stuff. She told me later on when we were older that she always just, she had a bit of nerves and never saw herself doing it. So she never did. Although I should say when she was 10 and I was four, she played violin in, in grade school, which they, they offer to you, they extend to you as an opportunity in fourth grade. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. <laughs> so there's a part of her that influenced me uh, at a young age to see music making at home and think, oh, wow, that is so cool. But she, you know, she didn't really care for it. I think she gave it up after a year or two. But then she married into a very musical family and all her kids, she has three kids, they're all uh, musically gifted. So she's always been surrounded by music and performing arts, but she's always been more of like a fan than a participant. Is your dad, is your dad so musically inclined? No, not at all. No, <laughs> he can ba just barely carry a tune. Okay. Uh, he, like, again, loves music and, and he, his thing is movies. He loves movies, movies and TV. And we grew up with uh, like the best 
that the late 80s, early 90s home theater could buy just like, you know, a big rear projection TV that uh, nowadays would just look awful. Big, you know, stereo sound. I have fond memories of every time we went to the grocery store picking up a dollar VHS tape for, for a one day rental. And yeah, very, very big into movies. And uh, yeah. Going back to when you were in grade school. Yeah. Were there any like class plays or anything like that that you participated in? Not in grade school, but in preschool. I, I went to uh, Trinity for preschool, which is um, Christian uh, religious preschool. And they did, they had like a Christmas play and I played Joseph and it was like a manger scene. So you already were having lead roles. <laughs> that was, that was the first thing I ever did. And I was just, I just remember being bored the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Joseph didn't do a lot, right? No, he, he sort of, he, he went along for the ride. He hung around. Yeah. yeah he got denied uh, a room. He got denied a room. <laughs> he got denied a room. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> then he sits around. Then he sits, then he sits around. Yeah. Was that like a K through eight school or was, was, did you have to like a middle school that, that so, you went to? Yeah. Uh, so I went to middle school at Morton which is another OPS school. So from, from Sunny Slope into Morton for, for seven and eight, and then on to, to Burke for high school. You are, I'm telling you. Burke and Omaha Theater, right? Burke and Omaha Theater yeah. is like a There's big, a lot of representation. There's a lot and of it's, representation. Most of it's uh, coming out of uh, Greg Doty's drama program. That is that is what I understand. And now Emily Mokriski. Uh-huh. Now she's, is, she's carrying, carrying that banner. torch. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. And she's... Um, She's doing a great job. She's actually doing stuff behind the scenes to get um, all the alumni together to talk about maybe doing a project together. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Tell me about the shows that you did when you were at Burke. Were you involved in all of the plays, all of the musicals? Just about. So I I got to Burke as a freshman and I didn't really know much about the drama program. I had been a music guy before that, always playing in, in band in middle school and grade school. And what did um, you play? I played trumpet. Okay. Uh, so I started, I started like my sister, uh, playing the violin in fourth grade and I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like the sound. So an amateur- are not a strings family. <laughs> an, an amateur violin player sounds terrible. And so I would sit there making the music and thinking, this sounds awful, <laughs> but, and just going through the motions. And, you know, one thing I liked about it was that it got me out of class, which was pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't care for that. So I, the next year you get to try out the rest of like wind ensemble instruments. You could try saxophone, you could try a trumpet, you could try flute, everything that's not strings. And I just thought the trumpet was so cool. I remember a guy coming into class and doing a demo for us and, I thought, oh, three keys, that's so much easier than the saxophone. Anyone who picks that is, <laughs> they're hurting themselves. <laughs> so I, yeah, I picked that up. Going back, got into high school, was in band. At, still with the trumpet. Still with the trumpet. And had never, besides that preschool gig, hadn't done any acting or singing at all. And I saw the fall play, uh, Musical Comedy Murders in 1940, and I loved it. I thought it was so cool. So they... At Burke, they have a day, it's like their tech or their final dress, where they bring all the students in over like lunch hour and every last student fills the auditorium and you watch your peers put on a show. And it's, it's that then later that night they have it for the public. And I could not believe that this was happening in front of my eyes. I didn't go to plays growing up. I didn't go to musicals, loved uh, TV and watching musicals on TV. 
so to see that in front of me, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so cool. This is so cool. I thought of like all my favorite sitcoms like Full House and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I thought that that's what they're doing up on the stage right now. My favorite thing. So I knew the next time it came up, I had to audition. And so the next play thing was, was a musical. It was Annie. And that was like our winter show. And, and I went out for it and uh, hadn't sang in front of any, anybody. Didn't know what auditions were like. Did a, you know, cold read and, and learned a song from the show. Cause you don't, in, with Burke, you didn't prepare any, anything. You just sang whatever they taught you and got cast, got like a couple of little bit parts. I played like uh, Morgan Thau, who's in FDR's cabinet. <laughs> and I uh, played the hot dog man. <laughs> Who's in the uh, NYC song? Yeah. He just sort of starts it off. Yep. <laughs> oh man, I thought it was so cool. You uh, you were hooked at that point. Oh, I was so hooked, and like I had never done choral singing, and I thought like choral singing was really cool. I thought like four part harmony was just like something unreal, and uh, you know, I, my voice had just changed like a year before, so I was. I didn't have to go through that with, with singing. It was, it was like, I was ready to get into it and ready to build my skill level. And from there, I was just like, Oh, I want to get better. I want, I want a better part. I want a better part. I want to, I want to be a bigger part of this. I want to sound like these people uh, on, on the cast albums that I was starting to like become obsessed with. So, yeah. So, so then, you had the Annie cast album. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that was right around the time. <laughs> joking, but that's <laughs> for sure. No, no, I know. No, that's good. Uh, the the version that I had was Disney remade a um, in the '90s Alan Cummings of a, a version uh, of the show, and uh, that was the one that I that I preferred because I had seen it on TV and I was like, oh yeah, and it was you know the old one, the old movie version I liked too, um, and I grew up watching that a bunch with my sister. But yeah, it was um I was that was my first taste of uh, musical theater, uh, and I was hooked. So were you a performer in all of them or did you play in the pit for any of the shows? Oh, no, no, no uh, performer in all of them. Uh, so from then on out, my band career slowly took a dive because for me, singing, it became my obsession. And that's when maybe uh, a year after Annie, I got a guitar for Christmas and I inherited my grandmother's old organ, one of those old electric organs with all the switches and I just started noodling around with both of those instruments and, and really wanting to figure out how can I play and sing and, and how can I, you know, write little songs and, and do more to play and sing and how can I prepare for an audition? I went to high school with some, some really awesome talent. Like you probably know, uh, Chris Violet, who was, uh, what was he as a tag scholarship winner and went off to perform uh, all over the country. And he's come back recently. And he has, and we're so lucky to have him back. But man, he, you know, he grew up doing shows at the Rose and he showed up on the scene and he could really sing. And as someone who had no experience singing, I knew I needed to do something behind the scenes to catch up, to play catch up. And so that's where like my interest in learning instruments to prepare for auditions and to write songs and to sing more and to just, you know, engage with music so that I could, so I could catch up. So that's, that's where that, those, those came, came along. Did you ever participate in any quote unquote straight plays, you know, non-musicals? Yeah. So they did, they had like a fall play, a musical and a spring play. And I did every single last one of those up through my senior year. So I just missed that freshman year, that first play, the one that I sat in the audience in and I was like, oh, I have to be a part of this. And then I was lucky enough to, 
to work and fight for for parts uh, all throughout. Were you in show choir? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, sophomore year, somebody dropped out. I, I didn't even know it existed or, or what what its purpose was. I had it got invited with by some upperclassmen to audition and I did. And they brought me in uh, second half of sophomore year. And oh, boy, was I underprepared for that environment. <laughs> not a very good dancer and very slow to learn dance moves. <laughs> and unlike music, dancing wasn't something I went home and wanted to practice. <laughs> So that was a, that was an uphill climb, but we got to do, we got to do cool stuff. We did like a rent medley and, and show choir, which at the time was like, it was still new and it was pushing the boundaries of like, oh wow, this is very adultish for, for a high school. And we did hairspray, uh, which was, you know, still pretty hip at the time um, at Chicago, which is fun. And yeah, we did lots of good stuff in, in show choir. I got exposure to a lot more material and, you know, which made me go out and listen to a bunch of cast albums too. So I felt like between the musicals and between the ongoing medleys of rep that I was getting exposed to there, I was, I, I was getting a good dose of musical theater uh, education in high school. What year did you graduate from high school? 2004. And then did you go to college after that? Yep. Right away. Went to UNO, studied music, vocal performance. Somewhere along the lines though, I started having jaw pain my sophomore year. And so as, as a, as a vocal performance major, you, at the end of every semester, you have to sing for what they call your jury, which is, you know, three or so faculty who sit alone in the recital hall, like American Idol judges. And you walk out uh, at the end of the semester and you have learned five to eight pieces and they ask you blindly to sing three of them from memory. And it's, it's all art songs. So it's like, it's opera arias, it's uh, German art songs, it's French art songs. It's hardly ever, it was never musical theater until like my junior and senior year when I was pushing them to add that in so that I could, you know, have some practice in that. Is, uh, we'd interrupt you for a second. Sure. Is there a reason why the art song is chosen. And I ask that yes. because I do know other vocal performance majors yes. and they always talked about art songs. And yes. so can you explain to me why that is chosen? So it's a combination of things. One is the art songs grow out of the Western classical music literature in a way that is, it sits side by side with orchestral works or piano works that you would study in school. And so there's a harmonic and melodic vocabulary that um, you can trace from like the 1400s forward. And the art songs throughout each of those periods models that vocabulary. And so as you're studying, you know, as a vocal performance major, you're not just studying the voice, you're studying the history of music and you're studying the theory of music. And you're learning all about how music's changed throughout the time and how composers have used harmony in different ways. And the art songs sit as models that reflect those different eras. And so it reinforces your, your education, but it stops at like 1890. <laughs> it's, and like, you know, until I got to grad school, like the, um, Music since 1940 even was, you know, off limits. Like they didn't, academics didn't know how to touch it. And it was, it was bizarre. And when you think about, you know, musical theater coming out of operettas uh, in the early 1900s, and then you think of like the golden era of musical theater starting like post 
1930. You see how that type of literature gets completely overlooked in these programs because for one, the education doesn't uh, really know how to touch it. And two, you see a deviation from what's happening in the classical art music world. What's happening is like music for the people, which is, you know, Broadway uh, musical theater is, is becomes this like music for the common person, which doesn't traditionally get studied in, in those programs. Another thing too is, you know, a lot of vocal performance majors, they are training to be opera singers. And so art songs and arias are taught to you in what's called the bel canto style of singing, uh, which is, it's meant to emulate the quality of singing that you have when you're singing without a microphone so that you have your voice in a way that carries over an orchestra and hits the back of the recital hall without a microphone. And so art songs lend themselves to that style of singing because they were composed with that in mind, you know, 1890, you know, microphones didn't exist. And so everything that was written in that time and, and previous, um, was for that bel canto style. So they teach you in the bel canto style. All the teachers are all trained in the bel canto style. Most of them don't know how to straight tone sing. They don't know how to folk sing. They don't know how to pop sing or rock sing. And so they teach you in that bel canto style. It's also healthy. It's, it's a style of singing where you, you shouldn't be injuring yourself. Whereas some of those other contemporary styles that I mentioned have big pitfalls where you can lose your voice. You can develop vocal nodules, things that where you sort of permanently lose your ability to sing. So, so yeah, that's, that's the long answer for why, why we did art songs. How does someone who is trained in the bel canto style, so I'm assuming you were trained in the bel canto yes, style. Yes, that's, I was. So I, how, how does one who is trained, who is a classically trained singer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. make that transition to the, to musical theater and even more so the types of musicals that are being written today? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. In in a lot of cases, they don't make that transition. That the sort of crossover singer is much more rare today. For me, I a lot of my peers in high school had uh, private voice teachers who were coaching them in whatever style they wanted, and I didn't. I was all self taught in high school, and my approach was to go to the library because YouTube wasn't around, (laughs) go to the library, Abrams Branch, shout out Abrams Branch on uh, 90th and Fort and rent, rent books on vocal technique. And, and and they had CDs that would come along and practice vocal warmups and and try to do stuff that helped me out. And those books were focused on like pop and rock style singing. And then, so I learned a bit of that by myself before I learned bel canto singing. And then it was after my sophomore year I got cast in Eating Raul in college and I got a chance to practice all the bel canto I had learned up till then because as a sort of Latin singer, Raul got to have vibrato uh, all over the place. I mean, as long as my diction was was accurate for him, that more Latin American classical sound, I think just sort of upped the comedy factor. Whereas if he was more like pop or rock, it would have been more in your face and less authentic. So, th- so that was a, a good opportunity for me to, to practice that sound and to play with the boundaries uh, between like doing a character and, and singing uh, musical theater literature, but practicing bel canto style, but also having access to the pop and rock stuff that I'd done. So I was still in the middle of my education when I did that show. 
How many, besides besides eating Raul, did you do any other community shows when you were in college? I'm trying to remember how soon after you did Raul that Snap did Rent. I'm trying to remember. It was, uh, so I did Raul in 2006. 2007, I didn't do anything. And then- 2000- uh, You mean outside, but you did stuff like at UNO or did you not do anything at all? I did not, all? no. I was- okay. So you and all kept me super busy. And the thing about eating Raul is it was perfectly during my summer break where, you know, I got to audition like last week of school. Rehearsals started like two weeks into the summer. Uh, rehearsals finished halfway through summer break. The show ran for four or five weeks. And then I had like just a few weeks and then I went back to school. It was perfect timing. Otherwise, as a music major, I was in multiple ensembles. I had solo literature that I was learning. I had to give solo vocal recitals, singing for performances downtown, working at St. Cecilia's, singing there on Sundays. So I was just way too busy and vocally fatigued too, to try to, to try to fit that in at the time. So it wasn't until 2000. So 2007 took a year off, 2008 got married 2009 got cast in Hardy Boys and that was so three years off Uh, and then I was in grad school at the time less vocal ensembles and had a lot more flexibility to do community shows and then it it was Hardy Boys Oliver Rent all in a line that's where I forgot about Oliver and then Rent ended and I'm and I moved yes I remember I remember when you guys left and you went to New York yep 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 we did yep where did you go to grad school so master's degree at UNO. So I stayed there, you stayed there. while Mallory finished her bachelor's because she's, she's two years younger than I am. And your master's is in? Music composition. And then went to uh, Stony Brook University in Long Island. So that's, uh, they have a really good electroacoustic computer music program. And I, I really got into that in, in grad school uh, here in Omaha. And I wanted to, I wanted to get out of Dodge and uh, I wanted to go to either coast I was willing to go to East Coast or West Coast because I wanted to be a part of where new music was happening and learn from from that and 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 get more exposure to the arts and technology and and that was I saw that as my ticket out um, as an opportunity to expand because I didn't feel like I was done learning. What made you lean more toward music composition in grad school and then for your PhD? Well, uh, it's hard to say. And this was always weird for me in high school in that I never took drama class. Uh, I always took music theory class instead. For me, I always have felt so far away from being able to achieve my goals musically that I've always seen myself as needing the most help in that area. And so even, you know, a lot of people ask me that same question about, you know, why didn't you study computer science? You know, you work in the field of computer science. That's your day job. It's really, it's the same answer. Because I didn't grow up in a musical family, I didn't grow up with piano lessons, I've always been, and still feel, to a point, behind the curve. And so I knew that professional education in music would be a surefire way, I hoped, to get me much closer to to my long-term goals of feeling like, oh, I can really take music into my hand and, and grasp it, and I can take nothing and turn it into something musically. I really, really wanted to do that. And acting is fun. And I could have studied uh, musical theater to try to be a, you know, a performing artist. But I sort of saw that like I saw becoming a professional baseball player as a kid. And that like, oh, I would love to do that. But the odds are stacked against me. And I 
you know, I thought, you know, maybe I could do better in music. At least I would, I could, even if I didn't, you know, become a career musician, I would still get to take the, the knowledge that it gave me with me wherever I went. So you're at Stony Brook getting your PhD. What did you have to do for your thesis? Oh, well, I'm working, Are you on, still working, I'm on, working on that right now. Yeah. Um, so what is your thesis? Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> this is a, I get to plug my thesis here. Okay. So you get to, as a composer, unlike my colleagues who are theorists or historians, I don't have to write a book length work of prose. Instead, I have to make a significant contribution to the field of music composition. And so you get to pick whatever you want. It has to be, it has to be of significant weight uh, and, and, and length. And so a lot of my peers pick orchestral works. They write, uh, you know, a big... Like a concerto? Yeah, or- a concerto or a symphony or, you know, some other substantial work for the traditional orchestra. And, oh boy, it, you know, it caused me a lot of pain and consternation imagining writing that work and having it never be performed. And I saw a lot of my peers who graduated before me go through that process where they wrote the work, they slaved over it for a year. And uh, when it was all said and done, they were able to defend it, yet it never saw the light of day. I thought, oh, that's so, so sad. Uh, so, uh, so I'm going to interrupt you. So, yeah. so they write a work, they write a musical composition, yes. concerto, a symphony, and then for it, then they just present the notes on a page and defend it. They don't the like score, call yeah. up their friends and say, Hey, you play the oboe. Come play, <laughs> come play in front of these three people <laughs> and don't miss a note. That's not how it works. No, unfortunately, no, wow, you know, okay. in some cases, so it, there's a huge spectrum of composers and some of them are, they're connected out of the gate. They grew up in the orchestra. Their, their parents are conductors or, um, you know, uh, concert hall managers and they have connections for infinity and um, they have no trouble uh, putting something like that together. But across the spectrum of music composition, a lot of people are middle-class academic types who just want to learn and they find themselves in a situation where, yeah, they've made uh, you know a handful of instrumental friends who have been able to help them with their works throughout. But when it comes time to assemble a whole orchestra, they don't have that connection. They don't have that at their fingertips. And I mean, you can pay for an orchestra to, to read your work and it's usually not great because they're, you know, they're unrehearsed. It's, it's just like a reading of a, of a, of a play, but that's not the, the real picture of, of what the potential of the work can be. So, so they have, so you have to present, so you have to present the notes. You give them the score. Mm-hmm. Usually you have to give it to them. Uh, a couple months in advance. I, I have to double check on that. And maybe not a couple months, maybe it's like six weeks. There's, there's some polite time frame for them to review it. And uh, oftentimes you give them uh, an audio rendering of your work too. So they get a, they get a little sample of what it might sound like. And that, that putting together an audio rendering, that's a whole skill on its own. And if you aren't, you know, hip to that practice, usually the audio rendering it, it can actually work against you because it make it can make your music sound uh, stale or or cheesy or or flat. So so you give that to the your committee and they review it and then they ask you questions. They say you know you know why did you pick this medium or 
Uh, tell me about your themes. Tell me about your motives. Tell me about your harmonic choices, your rhythmic choices. Tell me about your form. Uh, tell me about your structure. They, they try to pick you apart. And they're really, they're looking for you to justify that you didn't just write something randomly because <laughs> that would be easy. But they're looking to see, you know, you know, who are your influences? What did you learn? You know, are you ready to go out into the professional world? And in most cases, you know, receiving your PhD in music composition is your ticket to become a professor of music composition. And so they're looking for you. They're sort of poking at your history, your theory, knowledge to make sure that you're not going to go out and embarrass them in the academic world. So that's sort of the way that I see defending the dissertation. So, it, you know, it might be a little bit different for me because uh, they know I'm not going out into the academic world. I'm sort of entering a more modern media landscape, fixed media compositions where I'm less interested in having real musicians play my music and more interested in the craft of making music that's ready for television or ready for digital media like a podcast or ready for the stage like for for a play uh, or or musical theater. This is a good segue then. You have composed music for two plays. Two plays. Ripcord, uh, both at the Omaha Community Playhouse, Ripcord. That's right. And then of Mice and Men, mm-hmm. which by the time people hear this podcast, it'll be over. So yep. hopefully, hopefully people would have yes heard it and seen it. Although um, it's, it's pretty much sold out at this point. So is it really? I haven't yeah. gotten my tickets yet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, maybe a Wednesday okay. or a Thursday. All right. I better, yeah, I better get if going you can. on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's wonderful that the Omaha Community Playhouse, and I know, I think the Blue Barn has done it a little bit, and I know Shelterbelt has done it a little bit, and even at Creighton University, they're starting to employ more local composers yeah. to to compose music for, for plays. What is your process, and it doesn't matter, you can tell me the process for both Ripcord and Of Mice and Men. Okay. So you were approached, and it was, we would like you to compose, compose some original music Mm -hmm. for this play. Yes. Tell me the process going forward. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) From the pitch. (laughs) Uh, Here we go. So Ripcord uh, was my first opportunity. First things first, sat down with Kimberly Faith Hickman, who uh, directed the show. Um, I believe she had seen a New York production. And so I sort of wanted to pick her brain about that and uh, musically how it was. And so we talked about that. And I, you know, I never did get a chance to hear any of how it sounded in New York. And that, that was one thing that I was sort of interested in. Is I, I wanted to know, what am I up against? What is, what are the pros? What did the pros think was appropriate for, for the show? Because I, I want to be operating at a professional level. Didn't get a chance to hear that. That's okay. And so we talked about what she wanted, what she might not want musically. And she was extremely open-minded. And so I had right away come up with the idea that the two main characters were in there, I think seventies and eighties. And the show is meant to take place in modern time. I think it was written in 2015 or so. And so, you know, I did the math and went back to the 1920s and thirties when they would have been born. And I, and then I said, okay, move forward a little bit to the forties and fifties because that's when they would have been in high school. Uh, And that, that's their, that's your formative years for music. Uh, A lot of like your favorite songs that you heard in high school, you'll never connect with, uh, you know, popular music in a way that you did at that uh, during that time. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be neat if a lot of the tunes and themes were based off of the music that might have been the earworms during the main character's uh, formative years, especially now that they're in retirement living, 
that's a very nostalgic time period, I imagine, in, in one's life. And I wanted to make this a reflection on that. Uh, also, the, the, the work itself is very much, it's a situational comedy. And it's, it's so playful. And a lot of the music of, of the 40s and 50s is, is very playful. So I pitched that to Kimberly. She thought, oh, that is so cool. Go ahead and see what you can do. And so then you, as a composer, you, you've sort of been given the, the green light to go work and, and you go off and it's a very, that's when the sort of the the lonely part of the process starts. And so for me, I was quite uh, worried because this was my first professional gig and it was the first time I had to deliver music on a deadline. So I was quite frightened that I wouldn't uh, make it on time because up to that point I had been very relaxed in terms of my own personal deadlines. How many weeks did you have? What was your deadline? And I'm assuming, did you have like multiple deadlines? So there was like a deadline where you said, so this is the way I'm thinking with the music. Let Kimberly listen to it and say, mm, yay or nay. Yes, you're on the right track. No, I'm not really. And then you go back. How does that process yes. work? So there wasn't any hard deadlines and, and Kimberly didn't say, hey, I want demos by X, Y date. It was basically like, you know, John uh, Jablisco, who's doing sound design, he's going to need your cues by Tech Sunday. That's it. And so, you know, I think I had maybe eight weeks total. And uh, I think the show opened the uh, mid-January of 2018. And I think I got the gig in November. And so I saw, I knew I was going to be out of town for, for winter break. And I, I saw, you know, getting done before Christmas as as my my big opportunity. And that gives... Kimberly, plenty of time over winter break to listen to the material and give me notes. And then that gives me two weeks to do revisions, you know, and then get it to John by Tech Sunday. And so that's what I did. Uh, and, and my process was wake up uh, every day at 5 a.m. and compose for one or two hours. And what that looks like for me is, you know, first I read the script and I made notes of where I thought cues would work. And usually it's, you know, top of the show, uh, main theme. And, and for this particular show, each scene had like a scene change. Cause if, if you know the show, it's a show about two women who are playing pranks on each other for the entire show for two acts. And each prank takes place in, you know, a slightly modified uh, version of their environment. And so each time it was a new setting, uh, we had a new music cue. And so I laid all those cues out. First thing I always write is the main theme. That's, um, they take a lot of influences from TV theme songs because I love television theme songs. And I try to write something that's catchy and melodic and short and portable. And uh, what I mean by portable is that if you hear it enough times, you can take it with you and, and hum it or, or sing along with it. And that's, you know, trying to strive for that level of simplicity while also writing something interesting is, you know, always a fun challenge for me. And so I, I wrote the main theme uh, and I wrote a couple other themes. I did a, a, some quick mixes on them. I sent them to Kimberly. She gave me some feedback. Uh, and then I went back and wrote several more themes, sent them back to her uh, with my revisions for the original themes, got some notes and uh, just kept turning that around until I got to the place where I had all of the masters and I, I, I gave them off to John. When you write music... You are the one that is playing all of the instruments? Yes. Do you have, I know, you know, according to what your bio is, that there are a number of instruments that you play. Yes. But do you use any other kind of like software programs or anything that will give you a fuller sound 
without having to hire a bunch of musicians. Yes. <laughs> and, and not that you don't want to hire a no, bunch of musicians, I, but there are limits world. to budgets and things of <laughs> that nature. So I'm sure there's some tricks of the trade that oh, a yeah. composer has That's right. to give a fuller sound without unions getting involved. Yeah. <laughs> so true. And the clock strikes 10 and we leave. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee break. I grew up uh, in the environment um, before uh, sample libraries exist. And, and that's, that's what I use today. And so, you know, I used to be like thinking I would hire session musicians and, or work with a, a live orchestra, but over time, technology has really made taking virtual instruments and putting them in your computer and manipulating them till they sound pretty darn close to the real thing, a real possibility. And so for Ripcord, I worked with all virtual instruments and that was my, that was my goal was to make a convincing soundtrack for the show using all virtual instruments. And so the process for that is I have a little digital piano that sits on my desk and usually what I've done previously before I work on the virtual instruments is I've sketched out on my acoustic piano all of the tunes and all of the harmony that goes with that. And sometimes that's just me playing the accompaniment and singing the harmony. Sometimes that's me like barely playing at all because it's it's a complex idea that I haven't fully worked out yet. But I usually take that recording, take it to the computer, play it in line by line arrange it and set it up for the virtual instruments. And so for Ripcord, we had a ukulele, uh, we had a guitar and we had a, a big band. Uh, so we had brass, saxophones, upright bass, and then a brush drum set. So like a, a jazz drum set. So there was some, I like to think of it as like big band music meets the background music on the TV show Arrested Development, uh, which uses, you know, lots of, lots of ukulele. Uh, and sort of fun acoustic stuff you would, it sounds like he's just hitting stuff around the studio, but it has that, that very playful vibe to it. And so I wanted to capture that. And so you're taking all these virtual instruments, which are created by having a real musician play every last note on their instrument one by one and recording it. And then you're using software to sort of crossfade and, and mix those to create a convincing sound that sounds like a real musician. And so playing that into a digital piano on my desk using good musicianship and, and good playing technique usually translates into something that sounds like a real musician playing an acoustic instrument. And then you have lots of fine tuned details that you have to um, manipulate in order to make everything sound natural and fit within the space. And so there's just tons of work that goes after you have the idea that goes into what I call rendering and orchestrating the idea uh, into a deliverable product that the audience won't, you know, turn their nose up at. What, what you don't want it to sound like is um, a karaoke track uh, where it just sounds very like synthetic and, and goofy. You want it to sound like, oh, oh, this could be a, you know, um, real musicians. How is the process the same or different for Of Mice and Men? For Of Mice and Men, it was, it was very, very similar. How it was different was I had a lot more lead time sometime early in, I want to say August. Yeah, it was August. Kimberly emailed me and said, Hey, you're on the top of my list. You get to pick what show you want to do. And she gave me options. And oh, I saw Of Mice and Men and I was like, Of Mice and Men, of course. I love that show. I love Steinbeck. I read the play in high school and just thought it was amazing. I've seen, you know, at least I think there's two movie versions, maybe just one. I wanted to get my hands on something darker because Ripcord was so playful 
And I knew that it's a lot easier for me to write darker, more brooding, emotional music. And, and I was like, oh, this is, uh, this is an opportunity to, to add a lot more, a lot more of that sort of angst into the, into the music composition process. And so I had a lot more lead time on Of Mice and Men. And, you know, I chatted with a bland on the phone early on and he was like, you know, do whatever you want. Uh, again, I got sort of free reign to, to be creative and be playful. And I, you know, recorded little ideas over the course of two or three months. I would sit down, inspiration would strike me. I would sit down on the piano with my iPhone, hit the record button and, and play some of these tunes. It wasn't until late December, January this year that I sat down and did the rendering and, and did the, um, did the orchestrating and sent them to a bland and he, he dug them. Uh, and he asked for just, just a few revisions and a few extensions and cuts things to make them fit the show better. And then they ran with them. And, um, so in, in a lot of ways there were less cues because of mice and men has like two settings. It's not running around playing pranks on each other. So similar, but, but different and a different space. This was in the, the Howard Drew, which sounds completely different than the main stage in terms of acoustics and the speakers. It's, it's a lot more intimate. So the music sticks with you more. And and I know that you've obviously you've spent a lot of time in there, but I think the the couple of musicals that you've done there that you've performed in have been on the main stage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah only been on the main stage yeah. there. But do you have the opportunity to go in and because obviously you've seen shows in the Howard Drew. Yeah. But I have. Yep. You were talking about the acoustical differences. So mm-hmm. do you have the opportunity to go in and just kind of sit and throw some sounds out there to see how it, or it doesn't work like that. Well, you know, in a perfect world, if it would, <laughs> if, if I was, uh, if my full-time job was freelance composer, I would be there doing that to tweak things and to, to hear how ideas sit in the space. But instead I have to use, there's sort of good universal technique about audio production that if you keep things sounding good in multiple spaces, so I'll listen on headphones, I'll listen in my studio, I'll listen in my car, I'll listen in my bedroom. And if I get unified balance between all those spaces, then I can trust that it'll probably be fine in the theater. And I always add a little bit of reverb to my tracks to to make them blend well with the acoustic space that they're being added to, to especially in a theatrical environment. And I got to say, having worked with John Jablisco for two shows and also having been a fan of his uh, for his sound design work and just his theater technical skills overall. I trust that man uh, very much to take good care of the music that I give him. And even with Of Mice and Men, he came back to me and and he he mentioned that he was hearing something in the Drew with one of my tracks and he didn't know what it was. He gave me some timestamps. He said, go back and listen to it. See if you hear it. And I was like, oh, sure enough, it's very subtle here. But I, he was telling me that it showed up very clearly in the Drew. I made some quick changes, set him back a new master. He played it back and he's like, yep, got it fixed. So you know, I wish I could be in the space, but definitely working with people like John really helps build that. I, I know I have another set of ears there that I trust. What type of instrumentation did you use for Of Mice and Men? So I used a felt piano, uh, which is a regular piano, but it's prepared by putting little pieces of felt strips in between uh, the strings. And so it creates this cool, dampened quality to it. It's very... It has like a melancholy feel just right off the bat. So it's, it's got less punch to it. So that's, that was the, the primary instrument that I used. I also used, I used a collection of instruments called British TV show drama. 
<laughs> because apparently they lend themselves to British TV dramas, uh, <laughs> which uh, was a like a woodwind quartet. So clarinet, oboe, bassoon, and then also an and flute, and then also a string quartet. Uh, so violin, violin, viola, and cello. So those two together layered to be extremely quiet um, so that they were very subtle along with this felt piano that oh and and uh and an electric guitar and that was it that's everything that's the entire palette so it's interesting i always put a little twist of something modern and that's the electric guitar and then i put something of the time period which was the 30s uh so those those acoustic instruments are very important for the 30s and and then that felt piano which is just sort of like a sound that you wouldn't normally hear or that you wouldn't expect to hear. If someone said, oh, this is on piano, you wouldn't, you wouldn't in your head hear the felt piano. When you write music for a play, do you write like, like this piece of music is going to go between this scene and this scene? Are you that specific when you write? Sometimes, yes. So there was, there's a couple specific cues in Of Mice and Men, like one when, when Curly's wife dies. I knew that Spoiler alert. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I, if, if nobody knows that, then, then we're um, all in trouble. A, a major character dies. A major character dies. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I, I, now I feel awful for spoiling that. <laughs> so that's a huge moment. It's, it, it's for me, it's the turning point of the show and it's, not so much about Curly's wife dying. It's much more about George and Lenny's dream dying because the opportunity that they are, you know, very much selling to each other that they're going to have their own place. Uh, they're going to be their own bosses. They're going to be not like all the other guys. Uh, they're going to make their way out of here. And, you know, when Lenny accidentally kills Curly's wife, it's a huge turning point. It's, it's a stab. And so in that case, I did, I did, I write, I wrote a cue uh, that was extremely different than the rest of the cues. Very dramatic, very piercing that came through, uh, but it was still based off of the material that I had written for the other things. And I like to make through lines so that you have connectivity tissue between everything. So that one was very, very specific, but otherwise I have other themes that I'm writing about the setting or, or just emotions that are evoked when I think about the work. And so I had pieces that I gave to a plan that were called mood one or mood two, and they were just generic, like outdoorsy type moods, or one was called the traveling theme. And it's the idea that uh, George and Lenny are always traveling through the country, you know, through, through the Southwest looking for the next job, next gig. So yeah, not always, uh, occasionally I'll, I'll write for specific um, moments or beats. But for the most part, I have the main theme, which I like to separate out. And that's, that's at the top of the show and maybe at the top of the second act and maybe at the bows too. And then I have moods that fit the show when you think of the emotions that are evoked and then occasionally specific themes. So as long as we're talking about the death of Curly's wife, yeah. <laughs> how did you meet Mallory? <laughs> Oh, I love no. the segue. <laughs> I know that you and Mallory have known each other since since high school. That's right. And, and obviously, Mallory is Curly's wife in the show. So she is, and um, hopefully, you got to see her. Yeah, uh, hopefully, uh, the show's over now. We met in in high school. I was a junior, and she was a freshman. And we, 
I'm trying to remember the the very first memory I have of her was at a drama club, like get to know you party or not party, but uh, at school event. And we played like an improv game and she just came onto the scene and was hilarious and just so fearless. And she had this like, she had what I call like Saturday night live comedy instincts. <laughs> Her timing is, is something else. And uh, it, it took me back because I was just thinking, oh, she's so cute. But oh man, she is really funny and just fearless. And those qualities, they're rare. And, and I, it hit me right away that that was really special. And it wasn't until we were working, I think it was on Harvey. She was doing backstage uh, and I was in the show. She started on, out on crew to sort of work her way into, you know, becoming a part of the, the productions. We got to know each other a little better. And then we, uh, in the musical, I was in Greece and I played Vince Fontaine which means I wasn't on stage very often and she was uh, on crew again and we got to know each other more and I found out she lived in my neighborhood and I had a driver's license. And so I was like, I'll give you a ride home. You know, uh, you know, I can, uh, I can even pick you up and bring you to rehearsal and like, you know, just tried to find every opportunity I could to, to be around her more. I thought she was so cool. And so, yeah, just so full of energy and, and comedy and beauty. And I just wanted to be around her and her, her style. She was not, she was never uptight and never, never full of herself. And to me, those are qualities that, you know, you could spend a lifetime around those. And, um, that always just, that, that drew me in. And so, yeah, so we met in high school doing theater. Yeah. And she is quite the actress. Yes, she is. She's she is. done quite a number of things, including Rock of Ages. Y yep. And when she was absolutely outstanding. Oh, she crushed it. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So the question is, your son, Leo, is how old? He's four. Okay. Do you think he's going to, does he have mom and dad's uh, performing genes? Oh, I think he does. <laughs> Are you going to encourage the boy? <laughs> we do. He... <laughs> You know, when, when, when I knew I was going to be a dad, I thought to myself, oh, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to be that dad uh, who pushes it. But it, you know, it turns out that you can tell pretty early on that when your child likes singing and dancing and pretending and oh boy, does he in particular, he's extremely obsessive about music. And he's, he's very particular about what music we listen to in the car, very particular about what music's being played at home. He likes to recite long lengths of, of lyrics to songs that he knows. And if you interrupt him, he will lose his cool. He's extremely serious about it, but he's also very playful and he loves, he loves to, he loves to dance and he loves to, he loves to perform. So we, you know, we got him enrolled in the Rose has, has a program, a musical theater program for, for four-year-olds. And oh boy, he bombed his first performance. <laughs> he, I don't know if it was stage fright or what threw him off, but all the kids get out there and they all come sort of like half jogging onto the stage and they're ready to sing their group number. And he breaks down and he freezes and tears just, he's not bawling. He's just standing there, eyes shut, 
tears silently dripping down his face for like 10 long minutes and me and Mallory are dying because there's nothing we can do. (laughs) And that was, oh boy, that is hard. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. (laughs) But after the show, we were like, are you okay? What? And he's like, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. I was like, you you were crying up there. Uh, And he was like, oh yeah, I got sad. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So I don't know. We, we thought, you know, maybe we'll take a break from this like structured performing and let him find his own way. I mean, four is really young. You know, we asked him, do you want to be in this? And he was like, yeah. And you know, then I don't, you know, whatever triggered him on stage really, it didn't seem to affect him much, but oh boy, did it affect mom and dad. And so, so yeah. So we said, all right, well, at the end of the semester, you know, we'll, we'll let you take a break from that. Um, but he's, he's currently doing something with, uh, OCP, one of their kids classes right now. He's actually in one of Mallory's classes right now. Did he enjoy your performance in Beauty and the Beast or was he like just way too young? Both. (laughs) (laughs) He loved it. He loved the lore. Uh, of Beauty and the Beast. He loved that his dad was the beast, which was cool because I feel like the cutoff for your son caring that you're the beast, uh, it falls off at like six, maybe. You know, <laughs> I, I had point, Steve Krambic over the other night. Oh and yeah, I'm like, Shrek. Yeah, for Shrek. Yeah. And I'm like, there's gotta be bragging rights on a playground. Like my dad's Shrek. Mm-hmm. And he said that the girls were like more like Lumiere. It was mm. more of a Lumiere thing. Sure, sure. But I'm like, you know, that's got to be some bragging rights. Like, my dad's a beast. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he he was, you know, what, uh, just about three or he was three at the time. And he was, he was obsessed. We bought him a little Halloween costume of the beast <laughs> that he wore to a rehearsal. And, and Leanne's daughter had a bell costume. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, I don't, I don't remember exactly how that all got set up, but it was set up. <laughs> and he loved it. He loved it. Um, he, but you know, you asked, you know, was he too young? Yes, because he couldn't, uh, he couldn't last for both acts. And so he, he sat through the first act, and by the second act, he was too tired or, or too bored, or you know, it's two different nights. You need to get him there for act one, one night, and then that's act right. two. Yep. Yeah. And he was that way with Mallory's shows. Uh, you know, it wasn't until maybe the past year that we've sort of gotten him to um, sit through entire shows, but it's, he's still, he's on the younger side. Oh yeah. Forrest Young. Young, 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 young. Yep. So I'm going to take a few moments to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. James Lipton style inside the actor's studio. Okay. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> what is your favorite color? Blue. Blue and green seem to be the choices. I uh, used to be green. It's blue now. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your favorite composer? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Can I name a few? I'll name a few. So if, if we're looking at like classical art songs, I really like WC. If we're looking at newer orchestral music, 20th century, huge Gershwin fan. Uh, I love that mix of what was popular at the time for him. Uh, with what was serious in the orchestra world, I love those those hybrids. Seeing those two overlap, and, and he was a he was a you know a wizard at that. Uh, died way too young. Um, would have loved to see more of his stuff come out. Definitely in the in the musical theater world, uh, Leonard Bernstein 
he did again uh, one of those people who who touched uh, had feet on on both sides for movies really like like uh, John Bryan who did Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind really loved John Williams who, who of course did uh, Star Wars and and a super underrated score which is both Home Alone one and two <laughs> then when it comes to the super modern stuff. I, I'm in a love hate relationship with, uh, Jason Robert Brown, where half of his material is amazing. And the other half I can't stand, but the stuff that works is good enough to be hugely, uh, influ- influential on me. I think that's, that's it. That's, that's where I stop. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Lin-Manuel Miranda, huge fan, but stylistically genre wise, he's on his own plane. I, I love what he does, but it's um, far away stylistically from what I'll probably ever be able to do. Where do you see your music composition going? Okay. We should talk about what my dissertation is because okay. we never got there. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mentioned I wasn't going to write an orchestra piece. So instead, I decided I wanted to write something that would blend the worlds uh, that had been most influential to me. And so one of those is musical theater, another is art songs, and another is electroacoustic music. And so the, the last bit, which I, I haven't talked about at all here, is involving synthetic sounds and captured sounds and using them in ways that create textures and sound design. So it's very, it's very much atmospheric music. It's music that's sometimes not tonal at all. It's just noise, but it still has all the emotional qualities uh, that you find in traditional music. So I wanted to, to merge those all together. And so at first I thought, ooh, I'll write, I'll write a musical. This will be great. And then I thought, no, I don't want to get caught up in all the parts of making a musical that that are going to take me off track from, uh, from, from finishing my dissertation. Cause I was, you know, greatly worried that I'd never finish. And so I, I decided I was going to come up with something that was based off of radio dramas. So it would be like a musical, but it would be auditory only. And so, uh, what my dissertation is, is it's dramatic work with, you know, a big narrative arc, um, that is, filled with music cues that are very much atmospheric, uh, which uh, serve as underscore for all of the dramatic spoken scenes. And then in between, just like a traditional musical, you have a sung material and it's meant to be presented auditorily only. And so, you know, the platform that I see for that going forward is um, for one digital media. And so I knew right away, I wanted to be able to get my music out there. And when I was done with my dissertation, I wanted all my friends and family, if they so choose to be able to listen to it. And then I wanted anyone on YouTube or anyone on Spotify or Apple Music to uh, be able to pick it up and listen to it. So that's that's sort of the platform that I see. But on top of that, another cool thing that I'm sort of playing around with, and I should mention that uh, Mallory is the book writer for, for, my, for my dissertation, is when the work is said and done, is putting it out there as a show that small theater companies can do in their space live with no visual content. So presented in, in the dark. And so the idea would be, and uh, see traditionally a lot of electroacoustic music concerts are presented in, in, in darkness. You go in for an hour, you listen to people's atmospheric music and it's very meditative and very interesting. And so I wanted a hybrid of that live performance, but also meditative electro electroacoustic music. 
And so the idea would be you would go to your performance space, um, you would find your seat, the house lights would go down, and they would never come up. And instead, the sound would envelop you. And then live performers who were on stage, which you couldn't see, would be doing all the dialogue and uh, then singing the songs live. And, it, you know, it would be uh, it would be a unique opportunity for your senses to not process any visual data, uh, which allows you to pay more attention or let your brain take more of the input coming in through your um, auditory brainstem, which you know, allows you to listen deeper, which I think uh, is something that people don't usually do, but it might be kind of fun. I'm really interested in this. I'm sitting there, I'm listening to you going, I want to direct this. (laughs) Well, uh, we should, we should talk uh, talk. because it's about to be captured in some capacity. Uh, It sounds amazing. So this is the work and I'm looking at small theater companies like uh, Snap Shelter Belt or Candy Project who have a very limited budget and a small venue, but they can get this talent that could pull it off. And, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the plot because I really want to plug it, but it's there's just three people in the show. And so if you can get three people and speakers and a place to sell tickets and you would pay me uh, a flat like royalties fee, then you could put the show up. And, and you wouldn't have to go through, you know, MTI or Sam French or, you know, one of the big names, you'd be able to, you know, share this art and share theater and share, you know, performing arts, uh, in a unique way, you know, just the marketing itself, I think would, would, would draw people in. And then ideally you, this gets put on in small theater companies around the country. And when you're done, you think, oh, that music was actually kind of interesting. And you do one of two things. You think, ooh, I could actually put this on myself. Or I want to go listen to some more of that. Uh, is there a soundtrack? And you would go out and you would search and you would find a soundtrack. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, there is. And so it's sort of like this backdoor marketing campaign that I'm trying to tap into the things that I know and I understand instead of hoping, ooh, I could write a musical and it would go up on Broadway. Which, again, it's that whole, I want to be a professional baseball player. It's, it's the long shot. Um, I would rather create a new backdoor to, to sharing my art with people and, and taking mediums that I know that work and that are interesting and familiar and repurposing them and, and putting them together. Is, obviously, this is something that you could do anywhere. That's right. Yeah. Even in someone's living room. Right. Um, yes. I, yes. I meant that. But I also meant this is something where you as a composer can be planted anywhere. That's right. You could be in New York. You could be in L.A. You could be in Seattle. You That's can right. be in Omaha, Nebraska. That's right. Yeah. This is the talent that is in Omaha, Nebraska, people right here. Do you have a website? Yeah. Uh, com. And do you have music samples up there? I'll or do you have somewhere where people can go to listen to your music? Yeah. Um, sound- Besides my podcast, let me just say Tim Vallier <laughs> wrote the theme music for Thank You Five. And I cannot thank you enough for writing the theme music You're for welcome. my podcast. It, it was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Where can people go to listen to your music? Uh, Soundcloud.com slash Tim Vallier. That's, that's the easy spot. That's where the, that's where you can hear Ripcord, you can hear Mice and Men, and you can hear the second draft, which is in progress right now, of the backing tracks for this idea for my dissertation. It's an hour and nine minutes long, um, so it's, a, it's like a one actor. And the idea is that you would, you would sit right through it. Can I tell you about the 
story? Please. Okay. There's this old Irish folk song called The Damon Lover, and it's it's based off The Damon Lover. And in The Damon Lover, you have this young couple who are in love. And the male character, he says, you know, I want to create this great life for us. And I want you to have everything that you've ever wanted, but I'm broke and I need money. So I'm going to become a sailor. I'm going to go out. I'm going to sail the high seas and make a lot of money. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to give us the life that we deserve. And she says, yes, do it. I'll be here when you come back. So he goes, he goes off, he comes back and he goes knocking on her door. And he says, I'm back. I I made all the money. How are you doing? And well, she has a baby with another man. She she married somebody else and ended up with somebody else. He was he was gone too long and and they missed their opportunity. And and he's he's astounded and he can't believe it. And he says, you know, this isn't fair. This isn't what we agreed to. Look, you made me a promise. Come away with me. Come come sail with me on, on the seas and 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 be with me. And she thinks about it. And uh, ultimately, she she decides to leave. She leaves her family and her baby behind. And she goes with him. And they end up out on the sea. And when it's just the two of them on the boat, the vessel together, uh, she starts to realize that he's kind of an awful person. And he's he's uh, not quite uh, what she expected him to be. And she starts to get this deep deep regret that she shouldn't have left this like safety, this family that she, that she made, you know? And, and she shares that with him. Um, she says, Hey, you know, I, uh, I don't want to be here. I should have never left my family. And he loses it. Uh, he loses his mind and he's like, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. He puts a hole in the boat, uh, and he decides that, uh, they're both going to go down and, and they do. And, and that's the end of the song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh it's uh it's a happy <laughs> it's an irish folk song called the damon lover and he's it's you know damon being like demon, demon. um right. uh so he's, he's he's the demon uh and uh you know you know starts out that you that you you were lured in that he's he's this guy that um he's cool right he's gonna go make money and and I want to be like him and, and he wants his girl. Well, he should get his girl. Right. And, uh, and he does, but it turns out awful for her, uh, and for him. So my show is, uh, you know, an hour and nine minute reimagining of that for modern, for absolute modern. In fact, maybe the near future. And in my plot, we have two former lovers who were grad students together. The woman goes off and becomes a neuroscientist and she's a struggling academic. She ends up married to somebody else who's, he's, he's a tradesman. He works at home and he doesn't bring in a lot of money and they have a kid and there's a lot of consternation and fighting about money and about raising kids. And she's the breadwinner, but she doesn't make all that much. And then on the flip side, her old grad school lover, he went off and became a a big entrepreneur. Uh, and he ended up in, uh, the field of artificial intelligence and, uh, space travel. And he comes back to her and says, Hey, remember this dream that we had that, uh, we would go out into space together and we would travel. Well, I just got this big opportunity to be one of the first people who gets to take a one way trip to Mars, uh, to, to pioneer Mars. It could be great. You could be an amazing, you know, 
co-pilot. You're a neuroscientist. You can help make sure we don't lose our mind on the way. Uh, what do you think? And she's like, oh my gosh, she's so, she's taken back. She you know she's flustered by this old love. Um, she looks at her husband and her kid and she's overwhelmed by her life. You know, this entrepreneur promises that her family will be taken care of financially. She, you know, she's insecure. She doesn't see herself leaving her mark on the world. And she relents and she says, you know, I'll go with you. And, um, don't tell me how it ends. (laughs) No spoiler alert. (laughs) So they, yeah, that's the setup. And, uh, and, and so they go and things get interesting (laughs) in, in the second half. But yeah, I, I, I won't spoil exactly how it ends because it doesn't end exactly like the Damon Lover, but that's, that's what it is. So it's, it's this, that's, that's the, the narrative structure. There are three characters. You have, uh, you know, the main female character, the main male character, and then the, the husband that she ends up with, who she ends up leaving. And I've got some local talent uh, in mind, uh, some lined up already who, who are going to help me put this on and, and record it. And I have all of the instruments, everything that acts as the backing track sitting right now on my SoundCloud in whatever draft it is in ready soon to be paired with performers and then tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. And then this fall, I'll go back to New York and I'll defend it. And then shortly after I'll release it, I'll make it available for without the, the voices for someone to produce. Maybe I could get somebody in Omaha to produce it. And then I'll also make a version available on SoundCloud and YouTube and Apple Music with our wonderful Omaha talent as the, um, you know, original soundtrack um, for, for people to enjoy. So that's that's it. That's my first attempt at uh, making a contribution to music composition world that's uh, unique. Head to SoundCloud. If you're curious about how the sausage, sausage gets made, you'll you'll see how the the tracks are changing and the version numbers are changing in real time tim thanks so much for coming on oh thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to the thank you five podcast with original theme music by tim valier for more information about tonight's guest please visit www.thankyou5pod.com be sure to head over to itunes or google play to subscribe rate and leave a review And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five.